Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're going to keep going in our series in the book of Luke. And uh, you guys should already be used to long series. I still have some people laugh when I say I'm going through the whole book of Luke, how long it's going to take. I'm like, I have done this before. And I will continue doing it. I'm turning 40 this year. I have a lot of years left as your, as your lead pastor, I think. And uh, thank you for that. That made me feel good. Um, and you're going to see a lot more long messages. But anyway, having said that, I'm not going through verse by verse by verse because it would take us years. So I'm just, it's every week I do a chapter. I take one thing out of the chapter. I leave everything else completely alone. And then the next week we move on to the next chapter. And so this week I'm just taking one section of chapter 10. We're going to do the... The parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm excited to do that. I'm really excited next week, actually. Uh, next week, I'm going to skip ahead one chapter. I'm going to go to chapter 12 because the week after that, Tom's uh, preaching. He wants to do chapter 11. But uh, next week, I'm going to do chapter 12, and I want to talk about anxiety. I'm so looking forward to that. And I know some of you will be anxious about that, but that'll be really good because we're going to talk about it. And uh, I think it's a big topic, and Jesus preached about it. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. But anyway, the Good Samaritan, chapter 10. And I'll read you here a big chunk. I just love reading God's word. And uh, one of the things that Paul told Timothy, right, in the book of Timothy, he said, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And so there's, you know, there's a few things in scripture where, you know, and especially in Timothy, where Paul says, you know, here are some specific practical things I want you to do in a church. And I love when he gives those, because we can at least do those, and at least that we're going to succeed, right? So we're going to be a house of prayer. We're going to read scripture out loud in public. These are good things. But anyway, chapter 10 Verses 25 to 37. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, so speaking to Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's profound. We'll come to that at the end of the message. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. We're also going to pray for Pastor Ray and Fran as they're in Latin America now for a month and a half uh, doing church renewal work. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We just thank you for your word. And every person here is coming here from a different circumstance here today, different people struggling with different things. There's people here today with health problems and marriage problems and family problems and every kind of problem. And only you, Holy Spirit, can take one message and take it into each heart and give us each hope. Would you touch us by the power of your Holy Spirit today? We ask. And Lord, we also lift up Pastor Ray and Fran, Mom and Dad. Lord Jesus, we lift them up to you. 
Would you fill them with, their, with your Holy Spirit? Would you give them tremendous energy? Dad already began speaking last night. He's been speaking to tons of leaders and in tons of churches, tons of different countries. He will be in this next little while. Pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. Pray that many are going to sign up for the mentoring and that every one of the more than 500 pastors who are in weekly mentoring now, Jesus, that their churches are going to bear much fruit, that there's going to be awakening in the church. Thank you that we, as a church here in little old Steinbeck, Manitoba, get to be a part of this great end-time work you're doing. In Jesus' wonderful, precious name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, let's work our way through this parable, shall we, right? And uh, starting off in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, the, the, the passage here doesn't actually tell us what uh, the lawyer's motivation is in asking this question. And so a little bit you have to guess. But it feels like to me, it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it feels a little bit like to me that this lawyer is, is, is trying to show Jesus up in front of his followers. Again, and a lawyer, just so you know, when you're reading the Gospels and you read about a lawyer, it's not a lawyer like what we would think of a lawyer today, a, you know, a person well-versed in secular law. A lawyer in those days was, a, was an expert in the Old Testament law. He would be like an expert theologian, okay? So kind of the feel to me, how I kind of understand this passage, and again, we're not totally sure what the lawyer's motivation is, but the feel to me is that this, is a, this trained theologian is, you know, maybe disdains Jesus. He sees Jesus as this country bumpkin kind of thing from Galilee, untrained. And now in front of all these crowds, you know, all these crowds are following him, and he's going to stand up, he's going to put him to the test, okay? He's, he's going to try and stump Jesus in front of the crowds, okay? And, and of course, one of the things I love about Jesus is you can't stump the God of the universe. Isn't it true? No, no puny human being, you know, some puny human being matching wits with the creator of said human being and everything else that exists. And it just doesn't work. And I, I was thinking about myself as I was meditating on this passage this, this week, and I thought, you know, if someone came up here this morning, and please don't do that, um, but if someone came up here this morning and tried to put me on the spot in front of all of you, I'm not a quick thinker, okay? I would probably start stuttering, backpedaling, Trying to figure out, like, if you asked me a question, it wouldn't even have to be a hard question necessarily. I'd be so kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But this lawyer tries to put Jesus, the Son of God, on a spot in front of everybody else. And what I love in this exchange is Jesus doesn't backpedal at all. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He flips. In one sentence, he flips the whole thing, and he goes, this lawyer goes from being on the offense to being on the defense, and all Jesus does is ask him a question. So the lawyer says, I'm going to put you on the defense. I'm going to put you on a, on, on, on a stand, and then I'm going to evaluate your answer. And Jesus just says, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And just like that, this guy is now on the defense, and Jesus is evaluating his answer. Isn't it amazing? I just, I just love Jesus. I can hardly wait till he's physically here on earth with us. It's going to be amazing. I wish I could have been there for this to see this. So now the lawyer is the one on the defense, right? He's now the one being grilled in front of the crowd, just like that. And so the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and live. So in other words, good answer, okay? Good answer. And it looks now like the conversation is over. Now, it isn't over, and the lawyer's going to try and justify himself in just a moment. And we're going to go there, and then we're going to get into the parable itself. But I wanted to stop here for just a moment, because there's something that Jesus' answer here, you know, we're so familiar with some of these passages, we're so familiar with some of these parables, we just read them, and then we just move on, okay? So 
so, you know, how does a man, you know, how does a person inherit eternal life? In other words, how is a person, what we would call today, saved? And then Jesus, and then this man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And Jesus says, yes, that's a good answer. Have you ever stopped to think that is not the answer we ever give to anyone who asks how they're saved? Like, we just read this passage and we just, oh yeah, okay, so that's Jesus' answer. But have you ever stopped to think, when has any of you ever in an evangelical church here in Canada ever heard a preacher get up and say, this is the way of salvation, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Has any of you ever heard that in a salvation message? Okay? And yet that's what Jesus says. So what, now what answer do we usually give when someone says, how do I get eternal life? Well, we give, for the most part, we give a good answer. Uh, we will usually say something to the effect of, you know, you've got to get forgiveness of your sins from Jesus. You've got to maybe ask Jesus into your heart. You've got to trust Jesus. It's a free gift, all sort of stuff. We give some kind of combination of those answers, uh, which are good answers. They're actually from the book of Romans. Okay, really good. That's the, that's the word of God. But we don't give this answer here, which is Jesus' answer, and he is the way of salvation. Isn't that interesting, though? And uh, I, the reason I wanted to bring it up here, and the reason I want to bring it to our attention is, uh, I just think it's so important, when we're going through the Gospels, we have to remember, sometimes as Christians in the West, we have come to have a very Romans-centric, Book of Romans-centric view of salvation in the gospel and in fact of you know kind of the christian life and we almost leave the gospels out now again i'm not criticizing the book of romans i preached through it just a couple years ago i love the book of romans i have huge sections of it memorized okay love the book of romans it's god's word it's amazing 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 my point is though that as christians many of us all we know about the plan of salvation is in the book of romans which is great we got to know what the book of romans says but there's a whole New Testament, and the whole thing is about the plan of salvation. And as a result, I feel like we've gotten kind of an incomplete picture. Romans is, is the word of God, and we've got to know it. But we have, we, so we have a part, a, a good part, a really important piece of the picture about salvation. But we just leave everything else out, and we read passages like this and completely miss the point. How many of you even knew that the parable of the Good Samaritan had anything to do with eternal life? Most of us never even paid attention to that. And so I just want to take a moment here and ask the question, what is salvation? I really feel like this is a rabbit trail that the Holy Spirit wanted me to go on. I already had some comments last night after the services. I feel like God wants to touch some people here today, even, in, 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 and for some people of you who have fears and stuff about salvation, I think God's going to touch you in this. But it's such an important thing. I want to take a little rabbit trail before we get back into the parable itself. But let's first talk about, just very, very briefly, very skim overview uh, what we know about the, book, the plan of salvation from the book of Romans, and then I want to bring in what Jesus says here, and I want us to have a holistic picture of what the plan of salvation is. So let's look at a couple of the amazing things we learn about salvation in the book of Romans. Okay, very quickly. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we learn that salvation is not by works. Thank God for that, right? Romans 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, thank God for this truth and for the book of Romans, and for the Apostle Paul pointing this out to us, that your salvation and my salvation is not based on good works. Aren't you glad? Because none of us is perfect. None of us could ever earn our way into heaven. And wouldn't it be scary if your salvation was based on what you did? Because every day you'd have a lot of ups and downs because we all have a lot of bad days. 
So this is really good news because what it means is it doesn't matter how good you are, that doesn't save you. It also means no matter how bad you are, how many times you've fallen, you haven't lost your salvation based on your behavior because your salvation, thank heavens, is not based on your behavior. I praise God for that and I thank God for the book of Romans and what we learn there. We also learn that to be saved is a very easy thing. It's not a long process. It's a free gift, and all we must do is believe in Jesus, Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is very good news, amen? amen. That's great news. It's not based on behavior. It's not based on good works. All you have to do is call the name of Jesus, and he will save you. That's awesome, okay? So I just want to put those things up on a PowerPoint just to review very quickly, and of course, this is a very basic, very quick overview. There's much more we learn about salvation in the book of Romans. But here's a couple of basic things, what we learn about salvation in the book of Romans. It's not based on behavior or good works. It's a free gift. All we must do is believe in Jesus. Now, but here's the thing. If this is all we focus on about the plan of salvation, when the New Testament says so much more, the problem with this, if we focus only on this and leave out everything else that the, that the New Testament says is, you can go to an extreme where some Christians in the West and churches have gone, which is that basically salvation becomes something that happens in your mind. If I just believe in my mind some right things about who Jesus is, he's God, he died on the cross, then that makes me a Christian. I go to church every week, I believe right things, and I just live however I want, but I believe in Jesus in my head, and therefore, and salvation becomes like a mental thing. It becomes a, do a doctrinal thing rather than a relational thing. And so we have to actually bring in the whole, what the whole New Testament says. So when Jesus answers this same question in the Gospels, he doesn't talk about this piece. He talks about something else entirely. And Darlene, if you could put that up there as well, thank you so much. Here in Luke, we see an added piece. Salvation is not simply a transaction of the mind. It is based on a love relationship with God. Does that make sense? So when that man asks Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell him the Romans road. Even though the Romans road, 100% true, that's a whole very important part inspired by the Holy Spirit of salvation. We need to know that absolutely. I'm not, I'm not discounting Romans. I'm just saying we need it all together. When Jesus gives the answer, he says, I'll tell you what salvation is about. It's about loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a relationship. And of course, we see this in other places in the New Testament. The Apostle James uh, really reacted very strongly against this idea that some people already in his day were having that Christianity that walked, that uh, salvation was something that just happened in your mind that didn't affect your heart or your actions. He says this in James 2, and I want to read this to you now. We're going to come back to this again at the end of the message because it ties so well with the Good Samaritan parable. But James says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Someone whose belief in God resides only in the mind and has not affected anything else in his life, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James and Paul are not disagreeing. The Bible doesn't disagree with itself. Paul would 100% shout hallelujah, amen. I don't know if he's that kind of a person, but he would feel that anyway, reading the book of James now today, okay? Absolutely he would. They're not in disagreement. James is, is responding, is reacting to an abuse of Paul's teaching. That Paul meant it was something only in your mind. So verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And here's the point. Even the demons believe and shudder. Did you know there are no atheist demons? There's no atheist demons. There's no demons running around going, I don't believe in God. What? Are you crazy? They all know who God is. They all know who Jesus is. And none of them's going to be in heaven with us. Amen. Right? Because salvation is not just something that happens in your head. It's the giving of your life to Jesus. It's a relationship with God. So we go back to Luke 10, and that's Jesus' point. And I want us to pay attention to Jesus' point, not just read past it in the Gospels. The lawyer asks him, right, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus flips on him and makes him answer his own question, right? But if we go back to Luke 10 there, there it is. Um, and the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's about love. It's about love. Now, this is the part where I, I wanted to talk about just for a couple minutes, and this is the part I felt the Holy Spirit in this rabbit trail really wanted to speak to some people, and we'll get into the Good Samaritan. This does not mean we're not turning what Jesus says here about relationship. We're not going to turn that into some kind of works thing now, where people are trying to gauge, do I have enough love to be saved? Your love does not, I mean, everything Paul said there, you can't earn it, fully applies here. These things fit together seamlessly. The point is not that you have to have a perfect love in order to be saved. Absolutely not. That, not that you must have a wholehearted love in order to be saved. Absolutely not. None of us ever gets to perfect wholehearted love. The point is just that at least some small part of your heart in some weak, imperfect way must desire to have a relationship with Jesus, even though you fail and you fall. The point is, though, that you haven't just clicked off you know, the checkbox in your mind, I believe in Jesus, and it was nothing more than that. Some small part of you, in at least some weak and imperfect way, must desire to have a relationship with Jesus. And maybe you fail most of the time. Many of us do. And thank God it's not based on works, so we're, we're saved. Because we put our trust in him. But the fact is that salvation is a relationship, which means you might not feel like you have a very good relationship. You might often feel very lost. But some part of you desires to know Jesus. Because that's what salvation is. It is a relationship with him. And so it's not that you're gauging, do I have enough love? If any part of you in some imperfect, weak way desires some relationship with Jesus, that's what salvation is, all right? Does that make sense? But I want to drive this point home here because when you get to heaven's gates in the future, there are not going to be angels there standing at the gates giving out doctrinal tests. Did you believe these things about Jesus? And if you get it all right, you get into heaven. That's my whole point is it's not in the mind it's a relationship, Matthew chapter 7, all right? And some of you will wonder, I thought you were trying to encourage us, why would you read us this passage? I'll show you in just a moment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of knowledge. And there we see it with Jesus. It's not about head knowledge. It's about knowing him. Amen. Do you see that? It's not on head knowledge. It's a relationship. Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, lots of you in here today, probably if it's anything like last night, have probably at some point read this passage and felt, I wish that passage was not in the Bible. Because isn't this, I think, probably this is the scariest passage in the Bible. I don't know of a scarier one than this. Because really, this passage, I think a lot of us read this passage and we go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. 
And we think to ourselves, maybe I'm going to be one of those people, right? There's going to be, what, Jesus? There's going to be a whole bunch of people that thought they were following you, that thought they were serving you, that loved you and went to church all the time, and at the end, you're just going to throw them into hell? Ha! So let me tell you something. I don't think, in fact, I'm convinced that Jesus' uh, goal in teaching this, like Jesus' desire in teaching this, was to scare his sheep. I don't think Jesus' desire is for your average sincere Christian who, weak, yes, falling lots of times, yes, imperfect, struggling with worldliness, yes, all those things, many, all of us struggling with these things, yes. And yet, I don't think Jesus was preaching this message because he wanted his sheep rolling and tossing at night every night, wondering if they were saved. And the reason I'm convinced he doesn't mean that is because of passages like Romans 8, where Paul says that this Jesus' own spirit, the Holy Spirit, desires for us to have assurance of salvation. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and cries out, Abba, Father. So we know that the Holy Spirit wants us to have assurance. If we're sincere, weak, imperfect, broken, yes, but sincere, some part of us wants to walk with Jesus. Then Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit says yes and bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. So why would Jesus say this and scare the, you know, the, the living daylights out of many of us over and over? Well, I want to say a couple things about that. First of all, I want you to see the good news again in this passage that it's not based on works. That's, that's good news already in this passage. Do you see that here? It's not based on works. Jesus says, there's, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that did good works and they didn't get into heaven. So it's not based on your good works. Whew! Which means you also don't lose it based on messing up or falling when you make mistakes. Well, that's good news. Okay? But now I want to give you some historical examples because when we read this passage, we automatically apply it to average, sincere Christians and then we worry about ourselves. But I don't believe this passage is to average, sincere Christians. I think there are very real people in history and even now that this passage is written to. And when I give you just a couple of examples of what I think are some of the people this passage applies to, I think it'll make sense who this is talking to. So why don't we just look at history for just a moment. I just finished reading a book, uh, Eric Metaxas's newest book, uh, Martin Luther, great biography. Uh, I've read lots of other books about that time period as well, church history. Any of you know who knows anything about church history? In a thousand years, the, the 10 centuries leading up to the Reformation, uh, the Catholic Church at that time, and by the way, I'm going to make a distinction now. I'll say some very politically incorrect things, but I'll make a distinction right now between the Catholic Church before the Reformation and the Catholic Church today. Yes, the Catholic Church today still has some very serious problems, I believe, but that, I'm leaving that out, okay? I'm not talking about modern-day Catholics. I'm talking about the Catholic Church in a thousand years leading up to the Reformation, okay? Have I said that clear enough? Yes. Good. If you look at some of the things that happen in the Catholic Church that the Pope and the priests and the leaders of the church did in the name of Jesus in a thousand years leading up to the Reformation, it's absolutely horrifying. Yes. And they did these things in the name of Jesus. And all the common people thought these people represent Jesus. That's the church. They're the ones who know the word. For example, William Tyndale was burned at the stake, not even killed in a merciful, quick way. He was burned at the stake by the church because he translated the Bible into English so common people could read it, okay? 
and he was burned at the stake, and there's many others. Jan Hus, they tried to kill Martin Luther. They wanted to kill him real bad. If you think about the, the Inquisition, they killed thousands of people in the various in Inquisitions, Jews and different people, and tortured them all in the name of Jesus, and they spent their lives doing works in the name of Jesus, the Pope and the leaders of the church and the priests, and they did all these things in the name of Jesus, and the common people thought they represented Jesus, and Jesus preaches a passage like this, and for sure, it applies to a bunch of those people. And ju on Judgment Day, many of those people who everybody thought, and the, common, the poor common people in those day, days who couldn't read the Bible for themselves, thought those people represented Jesus. And Jesus says in this passage that a whole bunch of them on Judgment Day, he's going to say, I never knew you. And we go, yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. There's no question this passage applies in many situations like that that have happened in history. And I think even today, I think of some churches today, I, I, I shudder who take out huge chunks of the Bible, huge chunks, and change what the Bible says about right and wrong, and then encourage people actively to live in sin without repentance, and yet talk about Jesus and social justice and all this sort of stuff, some of them too, perhaps, on Judgment Day may hear this passage as well. But this is not a passage to your average sincere Christian who falls and makes mistakes and genuinely wants to follow Jesus, and then Jesus is saying to them, you know, on Judgment Day, I might just surprise you and send you to hell. That is not what this passage is about. Amen? Amen. 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 That's a big amen. I like that. Anyway, all of this because of the Good Samaritan. You didn't think about any of that when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan before, but it all starts with the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So now let's go back to the Good Samaritan. So Jesus turns the table. He put, tries to put Jesus on the defensive. Jesus flips it on him, puts him on the defensive. And in like five seconds, this guy was hoping to look kind of smart and stump Jesus. And in five seconds, the conversation's over. So now he's got to justify himself, right? But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. That was too easy. And I ended up on the wrong end of that stick. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Like, let's make this a little more complicated. Maybe I can stump Jesus with this one. And I almost wonder, Jesus inside must be chuckling again, the God of the universe. I even almost wonder if he put this thought in the man's head so that he would ask him so that he could really go for the jugular. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, Mr. Hoity-toity lawyer, right? So verse 30, now Jesus is going to answer. As he often does, he doesn't answer in the ways that we expect. He answers with a story. And so Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And of course, in those days, many of the roads in and around Jerusalem, in the hills of Judea, were very dangerous, many bandits and stuff like that. And again, Jesus, a master in the moment at making up a story that applies just to their regular lives. Fantastic. Now, verse 31. Now, by chance, right, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So Jesus places in this story two very well-known characters to everyone there, a priest and a Levite. And remember, this all started with a question about eternal life. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing Jesus does in this parable is he's going to knock out the ones who everybody would think did have eternal life. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, everybody in those days would have thought, if anybody knows the way to eternal life, it's the priests and the Levites. It's the religious people who guard the way to the temple and the scriptures and all that sort of stuff. And in one fell swoop, Jesus is going to knock them out. Say, it's not them. 
Now, I should also say, probably, I was reading some commentaries this week, and I, I was fascinated by this. I never thought of this before. And one of the commentators was just saying, many of the ordinary folk in the crowd listening to Jesus at this part, part were probably cheering. Because a lot of them, no doubt, just like there's different you know, class kind of rivalries that have gone on in our culture and different cultures, probably a lot of the ordinary folk you know, thought of the Levites and priests as you know, hypocritical or snobs or those kinds of things. So when Jesus says a Levite and a priest and knocks them on this parable, probably this crowd of regular people, fishermen and farmers and carpenters, they're probably all going, oh, we really like this parable. Like, stick it to them right? Stick it to him, Jesus, right? And they're waiting now, and they're hoping, okay? Now Jesus is going to bring in the, the, the hero of the story. He's, 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 you know, sticking it to the Levites and the priests. Now he's going to bring in the hero, and they're probably hoping it's going to be a regular Joe. Some carpenter with, you know, with calloused hands, some fisherman, something like that. But he's going to bring in someone that pleases all of us. But again, one of the things I love about Jesus, probably partially because I wasn't there, consistently in the Gospels, he intentionally makes sure to offend every person in the crowd when he's talking. He's got the ordinary Joes on his side. All you have to do is give him a carpenter, give him a fisherman as the hero of this story. But no, he gets the Levites and the priests and sticks it to them, and then he makes sure to tweak everybody else who's left in the crowd, and he starts his next sentence with, but a Samaritan. Why would you do that? Like, you were just about to be popular. You were just about to have a, a, a rousing sermon that everyone liked, and then you had to say that. See, the Jews and the Samaritans, I've talked about this before. I won't go at it at length, but they absolutely despised each other. It goes right back to the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, if you, in fact, you read the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, you know where Nehemiah and the people go back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They have to keep a sword in one hand because all the surrounding peoples around Jerusalem are threatening them and intimidating them and lying about them and all this sort of stuff. Those were Samaritans. It goes right back to the Old Testament. They hated each other. In fact, while Jesus was a, was a boy, so just you know, you know, a couple of decades maybe before this, the parable is being told, uh, one of the things the Samaritans did as sort of a prank, just about started a civil war, was they snuck into the, to the temple in the middle of the night on Passover and scattered bones all over the Jewish temple in Jerusalem to desecrate it, okay? I mean, the Jews just about lost their minds, okay? These two groups of people absolutely hated, hated each other. And yet here, Jesus, of all the people he could pick, there's no need to go the Samaritan route. He could pick anyone. There's not Samaritans in this crowd, like, like, there's no need to pick a Samaritan. He intentionally goes after and says, makes the hero of his parable in front of everybody else someone that would utterly offend them. And there's a couple of things I want to say about that. First of all, I want to say that the heroes in Jesus' eyes, the, you know in the Gospels it says the, the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus sees people totally different than we do. If he was here today and he came on the stage, first of all, I would very quickly take my seat. Take out a pen and start taking notes, right? Followed his feet first. But if he was here today and he came up here on stage and he made a list, who are the first in this church? Who are the heroes of this church? I can guarantee you a bunch of people near the top of the list would absolutely shock us and so would a bunch of the people down at the bottom. Because he sees things very differently than we do. And the reason, remember, this all started with what should I do to inherit life, eternal life? He's now going to talk about love, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to get into that in just a moment. 
But he sees things not by talent and ability and charisma and likability. He sees the heart who loves God and who loves people. Now, the sad thing is, I think, you know, this uh, Samaritan parable has been preached, you know, who knows, thousands and thousands of times, no doubt, in church history, you know, in the last couple thousand years. I think it has often in our culture failed to have much impact because we just kind of read it and we actually feel good about ourselves. And the reason we feel good about ourselves is we think the only kind of practical piece that comes out of this is, you know, don't be, you know, racist because, you know, the Jews were all racist against the Samaritans. So, you know, bad on them. But we're Canadians now in 2018 and we don't have racial prejudices, right? That's, we pride ourselves kind of on that. You know, those Americans, you know, south of the border, they have racial problems, but we don't have it in Canada. That's kind of what we think, right? Now, it's, not, it's certainly not entirely true, and we have racial prejudices here as well, but many of us as Canadians would pride ourselves on not being racially prejudiced. And if you're here today and you have no racial prejudices, that's very good because racial prejudice is a sin, no question about it. But here's the thing. If Jesus was here today, then, and if all of us here could say, honestly, we don't have any racial prejudices, he would say, but you have some other ones, and he would tell the parable in a new way, and he would tweak us on those ones. Because we've just exchanged racial prejudice, in many cases, for socially accepted, acceptable prejudices. I'll tell you one prejudice that some of us have, not all of us, but some of us have a prejudice against wealthy people. And here's how I, you say, I'm not prejudiced against wealthy people. Some of us automatically judge automatically we judge the moment someone has a big house or a nice car or they go on nice trips every, every year, we automatically judge them and say, that person is worldly. That's what some of us do. That person is worldly. They could spend that money more on God. They could spend that more money more on the lost. We automatically judge. Do you know if Jesus was here today and he made a list of the first and the last, the heroes and the not heroes here in his church? I can guarantee you some of the people at the top of the list would be rich. Some would be poor and some would be rich. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's not like rich people automatically go to the bottom of Jesus' list. And Jesus would rebuke those of us who have prejudice against successful people. And he would say, for some of them, he would say, you have no idea. Yes, they have a big house. And yes, they have some nice toys. And you have no idea how crazy generous they are behind the scenes. The sacrifices they've made, some of the people they've taken under their wings, and some of the people they've helped over the years, you have no idea. And Jesus said they're actually near the top of the list. Some of them. Not all of them. You're not, you're not at the top of the list because you're rich, but you're also not not at the top of the list because you're rich. Amen? Now, some of us, it might not be wealthy people. It might be the opposite end of the spectrum. Some of us might have prejudices against people who have immigrated to this, to this town, and have a, they might have the same skin color as us, we're not racially prejudiced, so that's what we, we pride ourselves on, but they might, they might have the same skin color as us, but they might speak with a really strong accent, and we immediately disdain them. The moment we hear that, and we see that they're dressed a little different, we, don't want, we just immediately look down on them. Some of us do. Or we're out in a cafe there in between services, and there's certain people with not great people skills. Or maybe their hygiene isn't great, and we just pray, Lord, don't let them sit at this table, right? Or we don't go, and we don't want them in our cell. We don't want, because it's just... It's kind of painful to be around them, and yet some of them would be at the top of that list, and Jesus would say, he would say, yeah, they're a little awkward, but they would be the first ones to give you the shirt off their backs if you were in need of help. And he would tweak it, just like he does with the, with the good Samaritan. But anyway, now he's going to show us what love looks like, and this is the whole point, and this is where we're going to finish the message. He's going to show us now what does it look like. What does it mean to have eternal life? Love God, and out of that is going to come a love for people. Well, what, what does love look like? 
Well, he's going to tell us now through this story. The Samaritan went to him, that's a beaten man, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And now Jesus asked the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, Now look at this, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go, now look at this, and this is to all of us now. This is to all of his readers and hearers now throughout history and through time. You go and do likewise. I want you to notice here that Jesus does not say you go and feel likewise. And that's very important. It's not you go and feel likewise. I think it's important to say in our culture because I think in our culture, in our day and age of social media and stuff, I think it's very easy for people to work up feelings. It's very easy to work up feelings of outrage. It's very easy to see a picture of something going on halfway around the world and give $5 to a GoFundMe page and feel like you've really loved someone. And by the way, I'm not against those things. It's not bad for us to feel compassion for things that go on halfway around the world or to be angry about, about injustices there. And this church, we give tons of money and humanitarian help and stuff into Africa and various things like that. I love it. It's very important. But here's the thing. It's only a feeling, it's not an action. If the only time you feel love is for people halfway around the world, but you can't do anything for real people in your life, that's not real love. You go and do likewise. Love is an action, not just a feeling. Now, again, this is part of where I feel like this parable doesn't really come home for a lot of us, because, okay, go and do likewise. Uh, I haven't seen many beaten people at the side of the road or the side of the 52 on my way home from church. Like, how do we do what the Samaritan did? And the point isn't that we have to find a beaten man at the side of the road, but I do believe that we can see, learn some general principles from the Samaritan about love. And the first one is that love will cost us time and energy and money. And uh, I had thoughts about each one of those but I'm not going to talk, I don't have the time to talk about time and, or energy to talk about energy, so we're just going to talk about money, okay? But if you're going to be like the Samaritan, I want you to notice, his love was costly. He's on the road. He does not just walk past this beaten man and just kind of, you know, uh, let me pray for you, brother, that's really too bad that you're half dead, and I've got I to gotta keep moving. He doesn't do that. He stops, picks him up, binds up his wounds, puts him on a donkey, then takes him, you know, goes out of his way, takes him to an inn, and pays for the inn, does all this sort of stuff. He goes out of his way. First of all, you can't be too busy. Many of us are just rushing through life at work, which is task, 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 task. We've never learned to slow down our hearts. I'm not talking about not working hard at work, but to slow down our hearts to actually care about the people you work with. Do you have time to listen to people and to care about people and to notice when people are struggling? But it cost this Samaritan was not, it was not convenient. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Love must trump convenience and productivity. But all, the other thing I want you to notice here is that love will cost us money. And this Samaritan, he pulls out the money and he does it. And the reason I wanted to just touch on this for a moment is because it is such a big theme in the New Testament. I should say in the Old Testament too, but it's amazing. It's amazing how often the New Testament talks about money, and loving people. And I'll just take you back to James chapter 2 very briefly. We don't have much time. But it just ties in so well with the Samaritan parable. We read this before. But what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I can show you many other passages. But it starts in the Gospels. How can I inherit eternal life? Jesus tells a parable. This is, what's, this is what a saved life looks like. You love God, and out of that relationship, you begin to love people. And then he tells the story of this, this, this Samaritan who gives. He gives time, he gives energy, he gives money, and he's ready to give it. He didn't, he, it, it wasn't, he didn't know about this in advance. He was ready in the moment. His hands were open. This money is to be used here right now and right in this way. And that's actually what a saved life looks like. But you know what? I think for many of us, because the fact of the matter is, I think some of us, the reason we don't give like this, well, first of all, we've just never thought of it, but I think for many of us, our, our financial lives are just so chaotic. Because can we just stop for a moment? I think sometimes people think that we don't have the money to give like this. Yeah, we live in a culture right now, we are some of the wealthiest people here in this building right now. Many of us here are some of the wealthiest people that have ever lived on planet Earth or that are living here right now. We do have money to help people in need. But I think part of the problem, you know, that Samaritan, he could not have given money to that guy. There was no debit cards or credit cards or checks in those days. He couldn't have given money to that guy to help him unless he had money on him. And I think one of the biggest hindrances to us living what is so prevalent throughout the Gospels, which is a life filled with generosity where we touch people, we have time to listen, time to pray, time to be with people, and also that money regularly pours out of us to encourage and bless and help other people. I think the reason it doesn't happen for many of us really comes down to it's that chaos of our life, the chaos of our finances, and a complete lack of planning. We're not ready to live the gospel. We're actually not ready to live the gospel. We're not looking for it. We just have our heads down living our chaotic lives. And at the end of it, we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to go, I'm not saying he's going to cast you into hell. We've been through that already, right? But he's going to go, what were you on earth to do? And one of the things, so I want to end this message. I want to just end this message with incredibly practical advice. But I want us to be good, a good Samaritan church in a Holy Spirit-filled sense that really lives the gospel out. Uh, for years, my wife, Ladon, and I were going to be married. It'll be 17 years in June, and, which is awesome. And, uh, and, but anyway, for, most, for all of our married life, we've been, we've been pretty good with our money, mostly because we're just not spenders. And we've kind of had three guiding principles for life, which is basically uh, live within your means, don't spend too much, and uh, pay off debt as quickly as you possibly can. We both hate debt, just naturally. And then thirdly, give lots of money to the church and the mission. So using those three things, we've never really had a specific budget. We've just kind of had those three things as guiding principles. And in living even that, that way, uh, you, can, you can do okay, right? So that's, that's fine. Those are not bad things. But... In fall, and I talked about this a little bit during the five weeks of generosity, in fall, we really began to be convicted that in addition, we want to give lots to the church, and we're never going to lessen that. We want to keep going more and more and more with that mission, and what God's doing here is amazing. But in addition to that, we began to feel this conviction. When I read in the New Testament, money was used to bless people, to help people, to bless people, to encourage people, that in personal relationships, to, to be generous, and to, and to be looking for needs. That's an important thing. And so... 
in fall, we began to look, well, how are we going to do that? And we realized it'll never happen unless we're planned. Like, how much money can we? What's left there? And when you realize that you're living kind of in financial chaos, you don't know what you can give, what you're able to give. You can do unwise things. So we've now made a, a budget, a specific budget. And I would, I would really encourage some of you, I, I really believe this is a message. I think some of you, if you would just do this, right? Jesus said, go and do likewise. Some of you, if you would just do what I'm about to tell you to do, it would help your marriage tremendously, would help your finances tri- tremendously, not to mention you would begin to know the joy of walking in the gospel generosity that, we're, that is talked about in here. But we made a specific budget now. You say, I don't know how to do that. Well, I'm not going to give you that, all that advice right now. Right? You, but you can find stuff online. Dave Ramsey does all kinds of stuff. You can phone someone in your cell or someone you know here in a church, and they can give you help. LaDonna and I, we're not financial experts. We just, I just took an Excel spreadsheet, and we just wrote down, okay? We need a certain amount of money for clothes every year, for this, for that, for that. We started, and then we figured out from each paycheck and each month what goes into each of these slots. And then we made a slot for personal generosity, Because I want to be that good Samaritan. If he doesn't have a bag of money on him, he can't help that man. And I said, I don't want to miss opportunities. I want to go through life with my eyes open because this is what the gospel is and this is what eternal life looks like. When Jesus comes into a heart, he starts to love people. You want to bless people and you want to use your money to bless people. So we said, this amount of money, every paycheck and every month is going to go to personal generosity. And then what we do Talk about cutting through the chaos of your life. Again, many of you live in chaos and lack of communication in your marriages and in your families with your finances. So we sat down, we talked this through, we worked it out. It took us a few weeks to kind of figure it all out. And now every time, every paycheck, twice a month, we get, you know, after payday happens, whatever, we actually sit down with the spreadsheet, we print it off, we look at it, and we intentionally talk about it. This is like mind-blowing stuff for some of you, right? Change your marriage. Change your finances, change your life. We talk about it twice a month. But you know what happens when you talk about it? When you talk about that generosity section is it forces you now to get intentional about doing what the Bible says. Go and do likewise. Twice a month, we're forced to talk about what people do you see are in need of encouragement? What people do you see are in need? What people are hurting right now? And it actually forces you to start thinking things you never thought before because you never stopped to think them. You said, I don't know anybody in my life who's in need. The reason you don't know anyone is because you've got the blinders on and you're just going through your chaotic life, trying to survive from day to day. If you would stop twice a month with your spouse or if you're single, just on your own and pray and look at your budget and pray and say, Lord, who's in need? Not just in physical need. It might be physical need, but it might be a need of encouragement, just in need of a thank you, in need of a blessing. And you would twice a month intentionally pray with your spouse and have a budget and have money set aside every paycheck and every month and would begin to live this out. I'm telling you, it would change your life. Could you imagine if our entire church would begin to live that out? To not live in chaos in our finances, to not live in debt beyond our means, but to live with disciplined finances, to live with a plan to be generous and now to go through our lives like this good Samaritan, ready to help, ready to bless, and ready to encourage. It would radically transform your life. It would radically transform this community. I really believe it. It'd be a renewal thing. So that's my weekly challenge. I've already kind of explained it to you. I'm just going to put it up there. It would be to budget amount of money every paycheck or month for personal generosity. And then to set aside time. If you're single, then just set aside time in your devotions. Have a reminder on your calendar every paycheck to pray about it. What would God do if we prayed about our money twice a month? 
Give to the church, yes, that's just the automatic, your tithes and your offerings. But now to pray, Lord, who can I bless this paycheck? And whatever it is, for you it might be a small amount, it might be $20 a check, a paycheck, or it might be $25 for a month. You might not have much to give, but something is something. This is the gospel. Go and do likewise. And then lastly, to listen, Jesus, who are you calling me to reach out to this weekend? I should just, you know, I, let me just close with one story before I pray, because I want to make sure that we also do this with wisdom. When I say this, I do not mean that you're just running around giving out cash to any person you see on the streets who asks for it. That's not always wise. It's not always good for them. Uh, one time, uh, Charlie and I, I took my son, Charlie, out for breakfast. We came out. We're on Main Street here in town. There was a man there, and he said, uh, could you just give me some cash? I just need some cash. And uh, in a moment, I just said, uh, no, I don't do that. And we just walked on. And I'm like, wow, what a terrible example to Charlie. What should I do? We sat in the van, and I'm like, that was not the right. Oh, then I had the idea. And now I've thought through it. This was before we started all this generosity stuff, so now I'm more ready for it. But I said, Charlie, that was not the right thing to do. The Bible says we've got to help people if they need help. But I said, I don't like giving out cash to people I don't know because I don't know he might use that cash to do something bad. That's bad for him. But I said, I want to bless him. So we went back out and I said, I won't give you money, but I will buy you food. If I bought you some food and Shoppers Drug Mart was right there, you know, if I bought you food, if I bought you some granola bars and stuff with whatever I had there as cash on hand, I said, well, how would you take that? He said, yeah. So we went in the store with Charlie and we got you know, a whole bunch of things that you know, we tried to be as healthy as we could. And, there's only so much you can do at some of those stores. But anyway, so I got a bunch of granola bars and different things like that. We went out to this guy, and he was there in the parking lot waiting for us. And then before I gave it to him, I said, would you mind if we prayed for you? And I invited him to church, and I prayed for him, and I was able to do it. When I, my whole point in telling that story is just this. You're going to have opportunities even to evangelize. And it doesn't mean having no wisdom. You can discern, okay? You can discern. There's people you know, and you can trust them, and they need money. You can do that. Sometimes there's strangers. I'm not just saying you just give out cash to everyone who asks. There's discernment, there's wisdom. But we gotta be like the Good Samaritan, amen? amen. And we gotta be ready to bless people, to evangelize, to encourage and all that. So we're gonna take a moment right now and we're gonna listen and we're gonna ask Jesus right now, is there someone in each of our lives right now that Jesus is saying, I want you to reach out to this week? Maybe it's that outcast that you've been avoiding that you don't want them anywhere close to your cell group or your house. Maybe God's saying, it's time for you to reach out to that person or an unsaved person or whatever. We're just going to listen and we're going to let Jesus speak to us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your words that give us eternal life. I thank you for this church. We just want to obey you and follow you and love you. And Jesus, you told us to go and do likewise. Would you give each one of us here today someone this week that we can reach out to? And let's just listen for a moment and if he brings a name to your mind, you write it down. If he doesn't, you wait this week. He'll bring a name to your mind if you want him to. If you want to, if you want to hear, he will tell you. Thank you, Jesus. It's so fun to be generous. So fun to live out your words. Give us great success. Give us tremendous fruit. 
Renew our hearts as we grow in this thing of being good Samaritans to the people around us. In your precious name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.